You found a podcast where you'll hear the truth, and we will praise Jesus' name. We stand for the Bible and won't back down from it, although it don't bring much fame. Some folks will like it, some will try to deny it. God's word will always stand true. It's been tried in the fire, still good in this hour. A prayer to be a blessing to you. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Pod King Podcast. I'm your humble co-host, Donald King. This is episode number 16. On this podcast, we study the Bible according to how it was written in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, of course, and how it was translated into English in the King James Version. Last time we examined the house of God and the part that Moses and Jesus had in it, we also looked at the possibility of humanity having a part within that great house of God. But in today's study, we will dive into Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4, 5, and 6, and look at the house of God more fully. Then we'll dig into some famous if-then scriptures. We also plan to serve notice on a Calvinistic doctrine before we are all done. Now, for the teaching on today's lesson, I'll now turn it to our host of the Pod King podcast, Pastor Donnie King. Hello to all of our audience out there listening in today. I'm so excited just thinking about serving notice on anybody that believes a Calvinistic idea. (laughs) It's a great time to do it, too. I think that uh, you'll be mildly surprised at what we look at, which means slightly. But I think that we'll be able to look at it from such a standpoint that it will strengthen your belief in the Lord. And it will also confirm what you have always believed as a Pentecostal holiness person. We're going to try our best to look at this in the light of the gospel, like we always do. Can you think of a better book to look at? I don't know of one, and I don't think there is one. That's exactly right, and that's why we're studying from the Bible instead of anything else. There's other good books that have been written, but this is the good book, and we're going to look into it today. All right, so what we're going to do is start off with Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4. We looked at verses 1 through 3 last time. We're going to go into verse 4 this time, and we'll move through kind of slowly, hitting a lot of things along the way. All right, for every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. Why do you believe that Jesus was worthy of more honor, like the previous verse said? He that builds the house hath more honor than the house. Well, here's the reasoning right here. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. This is all the explanation we really need for why Jesus is worthy of more honor. But he gives special treatment to the fact that he that built all things is God. We are called God's craftsmanship in Ephesians 2 and 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus under good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. King James Version says workmanship, but that literally is translated as craftsmanship. He crafted us. He's built us. He's made us what we are. 1 Corinthians 3 and 9 even says, For we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. So we are the building that Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 12 prophesied of that we looked at the other day. This is the church that Christ has built. We are part of the house that God is building. We are part of that temple that Zechariah said that the Lord would build. Let me read that to you, Zechariah 6 and 12. 
and speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Should it surprise us that God built this building that the author of Hebrews is talking about? God is the one who built or created all things. The word used for built here is catasquazo. Catasquazo means to prepare thoroughly. It means to build to completion. It means to construct something to the finish. God didn't start building the church to never finish it. God doesn't start projects and then forget about them as we do at times. We've got so much here that we can read and understand in the Bible. And Philippians 1 and 6 is a pleasant reminder to those who sometimes fail to trust in God. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We have that promise that the Lord, if he started the work, he will finish it. Now, the faithfulness of Christ is repeated over and over throughout this small setting here in Hebrews in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. We keep seeing how the Bible over and over brings out Jesus' superiority over Moses by virtue of his sonship. When it says in Hebrews 3 and 4 that every house is built by some man, but God built all things, it helps when we understand that the word built means prepared or established. Every house is established by some man. But the one who established everything is God himself. You may have lived in your parents' house, which was established by your father. When you went out on your own into marriage, you became the establisher of your own house. Jesus lives in his father's house. Do you remember that setting from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 5? Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. He's living in the Father's house. In Jewish customs, the man would not leave his Father's house. He would just simply build on to it. That's kind of hard for us to comprehend some of those things because it's a Jewish custom, and we really are far removed from that. But this is why and how Jesus was literally faithful in God's house. He still lives in it. The Bible tells us that he built the house. So we know that he built on to the father's house and he lives in it. There was no separation at marriage in the Jewish homes, but it was a binding together of hearts into one love, and they all lived in the same building. In America, we leave our father's house, and some never even ever go back. They have no desire to go back, not even for a visit. Now, I want to tell you something. We're not faithful in our father's house because we left our father. We're not faithful in our father's house because we left his home. We're not faithful because we started our own home with our own bride. With the church being the bride of Christ, we will not live forever in a place away from God. We will dwell forever with Jesus and with his father as the bride. Now, any son that would disrespect his father like the prodigal did, no good woman would be interested in joining into marriage with him. If he is not faithful to his own father, is it possible that he would be faithful to his bride? But because Jesus is faithful in his father's house as his bride, us, the church, I'm talking about us right now, as his bride, we know that he will be faithful unto us as well. I think that we need to look at verses five and six together right now to get the full meaning of what the writer's trying to tell us right here. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm unto the end. 
Now, there's two huge trails of thought being conjoined here. We're going to look at each one of them separately. But in keeping with the thought that we've been perusing, verse 5 starts off by declaring Moses was truly faithful in all of God's house as a servant. Now, keep that analogy in mind as we continue with the next thought, which leads us into another of the writer's comparisons. Moses was faithful as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. In other words, Moses was only a type and shadow of something or of someone that would be much greater than him. But guess what? We know exactly who he's talking about here. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 18 and look at verses 15 through 19. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken. Goes down and he describes this one that's coming a little bit. And then in verse 18 says, I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren like unto thee and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. So we realize that this one that's coming after Moses that's going to be like him is Jesus Christ. That's why the writer here is comparing Moses and Christ. This is the one that came after Moses that was likened to him. But though he was likened to him, he was much greater than him. As a matter of fact, Moses is referred to as a servant by many, many of the various biblical authors. I want to touch on just a few of those right now. There's many of these places I could read, but I'm going to try to just limit it to the ones that are the most beneficial. But you'll see that there's several books of the Bible that include this statement about Moses being a servant. Exodus 14:31. And Israel saw that great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Numbers 12 and 7, my servant Moses is not so who is faithful in all mine house. Deuteronomy 34 and 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord. Joshua 1 and 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people unto the land, which I do give unto them, even to the children of Israel. Psalm 105 and 26, he sent Moses his servant and Aaron whom he had chosen. Revelation 15 and 3, and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. We read that Moses is a servant over and over and over in the book of Exodus, the book of Numbers, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Joshua, the book of Psalms, the book of Revelation. And there's other places that you could go to and find similar statements over and over. Moses is proclaimed the servant of the Lord. Now we need to look at that comparison once again here in Hebrews 3 and 6, because the writer says, but Christ as a son over his own house. This is the big contrast that's between Moses and Jesus. Moses was a servant who was faithful in his master's house, whereas Jesus is a son that is faithful in what is his house by inheritance. It's not just Jesus' father's house. It's his house by right of inheritance by being the son of God. The author of Hebrews doesn't have a low view of Moses. He just simply has a higher view of Jesus Christ. Before we proceed much further, we need to understand that the word for servant here is not your usual term that you see in the New Testament. 
Okay, there's three words for servant in the New Testament, and one of them means slave, one of them means minister, but the other describes a voluntary attendant. The third one, all right, duolos is the one that is normally used by Paul in all of his writings. Paul normally uses that word, and it means a slave or a bond slave. But the word here that's used is therapon, therapon. That word means a personal service freely rendered, a voluntary attendant. It's something that's voluntary. It's nothing that's forced or coerced. The servant cannot share the same status as the son. But can you just imagine that for just a moment? Just think of of Moses being a voluntary servant. Think about having a home and you're needing somebody to do some work in it. You need a butler. You need someone that's able to do the part of the valet or whatever you might be needing. And a guy comes along and says, hey, I tell you what, I love y'all so much. I'm going to freely do this. You don't have to pay me a dime. I just want to be here. That's what this is talking about concerning Moses. He was like a voluntary attendant that says, you don't have to pay me. I just, I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm just glad to be in your presence. That's what Moses was. Now, that's amazing. But even as great as that is, Moses still pales in comparison to Jesus Christ. What Moses represents in Jewish history is not in itself complete. He was only there to point towards a fuller revelation of God that would come at a later time, which is Christ Jesus. The mission of the servant, as great as it was, was only there to prepare the way for a far greater mission by the Son of God. The writer plainly speaks of this house that he has been building his whole thought upon. The house, what is it? The house, could we say, who is it? Because the writer begins to tell us what the house is It says, but Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we? We are the house. We are the house of God. The house is us, those who believe on Jesus. What an amazing thought in itself. Then the writer goes on and he adds something that startles many people. The writer adds what is known as a conditional clause by putting one small word in between his thoughts. He says, we are this house if... We hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope unto the end. So this gives us a lot to think about here. Christ is a son over his own house. Whatever is his father's, the same as his by inheritance. We understand that line of thinking, but we got to think about some things here that's going to cause us to stretch our minds just a little bit beyond the normal. But before we do so, I want to give you a few scriptures here that prove what the writer has been saying. 1 Timothy 3 and 15, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? We realize that this house is pretty important to God. 1 Peter 2 and 5, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house. This is what we are, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2 and 22, talking about the church again, believers and whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Last scripture I want to read to you right now, 1 Corinthians 3 and 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Remember that verse from Zechariah 6 and 12 where it talked about the Lord that would come would build the temple? Paul's speaking to the church at Corinth, and he says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? So if we are the temple, Christ is going to build the temple. Christ is building us. If Christ is building a house and we are his house, 
All of these analogies work together, and it all makes sense. It's all tightly knitted together. Scriptures do not contradict one another. They always complement one another. We are God's house. In plainer words, we are Christ's inheritance, because if he's going to inherit the house and we are the house, Christ is going to inherit us. Now, just think about that for a little bit. But before you get to rejoicing too prematurely, he inserted a conditional phrase in here that can change the entire meaning. All of this, which has been built up and established by the writer, will be determined by our action or by our inaction. We are the house of God and the inheritance of Christ only if we hold fast the confidence of our hope and rejoice in this hope firmly all the way to the end. Something that you might find interesting is in the Greek, the structure of this sentence calls for more explanatory words in order to be understood better. While in the English translation, we have whose house are we if. In the Greek, the literal translation is whose house are we to be if. Now, that means it's not a guarantee that we're part of God's house unless we fulfill that conditional subordinate clause if by holding on until the end. Now, I want you to think about something else. I'm going to give you a few more scriptures to think on before we tackle this if-then statement. This holds with what Jesus has told us all throughout the Gospels, and all the other writers spoke of this often as well, holding on unto the end, holding on to the end, enduring to the end. Let's look at a few verses that concern that, and then we're going to look at the if-then clause. In Psalm 119 and 33, says, teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. I'm going to hold on and keep it to the end. Psalm 119 and 112. I have inclined my heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. He's going to hold it to the end. Once again, Matthew 10 and 22, and ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Matthew 24 and 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Hebrews 3 and 14, we haven't quite got that far yet, but I want to read this to you. There's going to be another conditional clause in this chapter. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Got to hold it to the very end. Hebrews 6 and 11, now listen to this. And we desire that every one of you do shew the same diligence to the full assurance of hope. How long? Unto the end. Here we are once again having to hold something to the very end. All right, Revelation 2 and 26. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. The idea from Psalm 119 and 33 is that if we're taught God's statutes, we will keep them to the end. And Psalm 119 and 112, David's determined to perform God's statutes until the end. And Matthew 10 and 22, Matthew 24 and 13, Jesus says that those who endure to the end, those are the ones that's going to be saved. In Hebrews 3 and 14, the writer is telling us that we're made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence unto the end. This is all conditional language. If you don't do these things until the end, it annuls everything else. It takes away the promises that you're holding to. In Hebrews 6 and 11, the writer says that he desires all of us to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. He leaves it hanging there as if these things might not happen. In Revelation 2 and 26, Jesus says it's to those who overcome and that keep his works unto the end that will be given power over the nations. Every bit of this is wonderful, 
but all of it is conditional as well. I'm going to endeavor to tackle this prickly subject, and I want to be scripturally correct. I also want to be clear in my speech so there's no misunderstandings. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Murphy's Law, but Murphy's Law says if you try to explain something so that no one will misunderstand, someone will. So as soon as you get to trying to explain it so carefully that nobody would misunderstand what you said, somebody out there somewhere is going to misunderstand. The Calvinists have a saying concerning salvation that they believe is impossible to refute. And I will say that there's been many a holiness person that have tackled that saying, and they found that it was very hard to refute when you try to refute the statement alone. Here's their statement. What cannot be gained by moral perfection cannot be lost by moral imperfection. In other words, if you didn't do anything to gain it, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Okay, see how tricky that can be in trying to tackle that, because just by the structural grammar of the sentence, it's hard to refute. When you take it for what it even sounds like, it almost sounds like, man, that makes so much sense. I mean, I didn't do anything to gain salvation. And so what could I do to lose it? When you're studying Hebrews 3 and 6 and several other New Testament scriptures, we see what we run into today, what's known as conditional statements. They're made up of conditional clauses. These conditional statements all throughout the epistle of Hebrews, they're very significant. They're significant for several reasons. Number one, there's several of them. You've got to do something with them. If there was only one of them, you could kind of almost dismiss it and say, well, yeah, but he must have been thinking something else when he said that. But when there's several of them, you've got to give an answer to every one of them. Number two, nearly every one of these conditional statements are concerned with staying with the faith or leaving the faith. So you've got to do something with that. Number three, it's dependent upon how you interpret these scriptures, because if you interpret them wrongly, you can be deceived. So number four, since this is a matter of faith, whether you stay with the faith or you leave it, we're saved by faith through grace. This can easily become an issue of heaven or hell. So if you're wrong on this point, it could mean your eternal destiny. So a great fear, I'm going to try to give my understanding of these scriptures and explain them in the context of what the Bible teaches. Do I think everybody that listens to this podcast will agree with all my conclusions? You might not, but I do believe you'd all do well to study these passages deeply for your own selves. Okay, the writer obviously wishes to make it clear that only those who are consistent with what they have professed will have claimed to be part of the house of God. Is that not what he said just a few moments ago? He said, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm until the end? Okay, so let me ask you this. What happens if you don't hold fast the confidence? What happens if you let go of the rejoicing of the hope? Are you still part of the house? Then if you are, let's say you answer and say, yeah, well, we are. What does the if mean? Why did he put if in there? Why did he make it so iffy if it didn't matter if you held on or not? Well, you believe you confessed Jesus when you was four years old. You're good for eternity. How come he put the if? He said you're only part of the house if, and if if you don't hold on to that, if you don't keep it, you've lost it. All right, I want to look at a few more scriptures that contain conditional statements, and there's going to be quite a few, and several of them you'll find are here in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 3 and 6, of which we're studying, but Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end, if, if, 
if. All right, 3 and 14. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. If you hold it, if you keep it, if you do this, if, if, if. It's all iffy. First Corinthians 15 and 2. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. Now explain that to me. He said, if you keep in memory what I preached to you, that means if you keep believing, if you keep holding on to that, unless you have believed in vain. If you believe in vain, that means that it's to no use, to no good. You didn't follow through with it. Colossians 1 and 23. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature, which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Now he said, you can be moved away from the hope of the gospel. You can get ungrounded. You can become unsettled and you can leave the faith. This is exactly what the if is saying here. How else can that be interpreted? How else can you take these verses and look at them and say, ah, he's talking about the assurance of the saints. That doesn't sound very sure to me. And here in Hebrews chapter three, there's even a few more. Verse seven of Hebrews three says, if you will hear his voice today, if you will hear his voice going down to verse 10 and 11, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. They have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. What? What do you mean? They'll not enter into your rest. It says, take heed brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Oh my. Verse 15 says, If you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. You get a lot of these if-then statements in Scripture, and there's several of those that you have to try to explain. There's different ways to express an if-then statement in the Greek. This is how the New Testament was written. Those different expressions imply or suggest different things. The way that academic grammarians talk about this is they use terms like protesis and apodosis. The protesis is the if statement. The apodosis is the then statement. If then language in academics is protesis and apodosis. In our case here, Hebrews 3 and 6, the, the protesis or if statement is if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. The apodosis or the then part is if we do that, then we are part of God's house. The writer doesn't say if we do this or that work, then we're part of God's house. And he doesn't say if we avoid this or that sin, then we're part of God's house. But the big takeaway point here that you need to get, see, that's one of the arguments the Calvinists want to bring to you. But he didn't say you got to do this and you can't do that. But he did say if you don't hold fast your confidence, then you're not part of God's house. Only if I hold fast to my confidence and hope, only then will I be part of God's house. This was laid out even by Jesus in Matthew 24 and 13 when he said, he that shall endure to the end, the same be, shall be saved. In other words, if you endure to the end, then you will be saved. If you don't endure to the end, guess what? You won't be saved. In the Greek language, verses like this are sometimes referred to as a third class condition. That means it contains a subjunctive verb. The subjunctive in grammar gives the mood or idea of unreality a lot of times or the improbability of something happening. A writer can put a verb into the subjunctive mood to give the idea that the action is contingent on something that is not yet realized, something not yet actualized, or in other words, plainer words, the thing that's being spoken of hasn't happened yet. 
the third class condition is presented as uncertain of fulfillment, but it could still be likely to happen. Look at this verse again. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, this is not fulfilled yet. For there's a contingency that's being placed upon it here. The third class condition doesn't portray this as if it's not going to happen. This time, it actually gives the opposite feeling. It's an expression of confidence on the part of the writer. This gives us the idea if if we keep on hoping, we will be and even are right now the house of God. We can be confident, my brothers and sisters, in our hope. You don't have to wonder today, can I make it? Will I make it? If you keep holding on, you will make it. The word if is modifying the word are in the whose house are we. If you hold on, you are. In plainer speech, we're only his house if we do what the following sentences are going to say when we get there. But we're running out of time. So every bit of this is conditional according to the Greek grammar. Wow. Good lesson, Pastor. It was thought-provoking. And very convicting. I'm so glad to be a servant of the Lord voluntarily, but sounds like our salvation is locked in to us with if and then. That's right. If we continue, then we're part of his house. The if and then, we have to really go with that. I've got a question here for you. Funny as it is, question of the day just so happens to be one of them if and then statements. So here it is. What did Jesus mean in John 8 and 31 when he said that if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed? So what did Jesus mean in John 8 and 31 when he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed? Well, number one, it speaks of a requirement. It speaks of a commitment. It speaks of a continuation of something. It speaks of the possibility of falling short of a desired goal. Let's think about that verse again with all of these things in mind. All right, think of a requirement. If you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. We're required to continue in his word to continue to be a disciple. It speaks of a commitment. If you followed out keeping his word, you're going to have to continue keeping his word to be his disciple indeed. It speaks of a continuation of something. You don't start out and then just drop off and never do anything again. You've got to continue remaining faithful in your faith. If you don't remain faithful in what you believe, then you have no faith. That's the whole point. The possibility of falling short of a desired goal. Did you catch that in this verse? If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. If you don't continue... You're no longer his disciple. You fell short of that goal. All right. The whole verse in John 8 and 31 says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. That's the first part of it. If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. These Jews were believing on him. What did Jesus tell them that for? If once they believe, they're good forever and all of eternity. But he looked at them and he told them, said, if you'll continue in my word, if you continue listening to what I say, if you continue doing what I'm telling you to do, you will continue to be my disciples. As soon as you stop following my word, you have stopped being my disciple. If we continue in God's word, if we continue doing his will, if we continue living right, if we continue keeping the commandments, then and only then will we be considered his disciples indeed. A deed is something done. It's an action that's required. Think about that. You're his disciple in deed, all right? 
Are your deeds good or evil? Is your deed speaking well of you or bad of you? If we follow the Lord, then we are his disciple. If we quit following the Lord, we're no longer his disciple. There's been a contingency placed upon everyone who claims to be his disciple, who claims to believe his word, and that's the necessity of continuing in his word to continue to be his disciple. The salvation is a day-by-day thing that we have to do every day. It's why Paul said, I die daily. Amen. Wonderful teaching. Remember, folks, I want to just give you our email again. If you have any questions that you'd like answered, you have any comments that you would like for us to know, just send, drop us an email at dkministries1977 at yahoo.com. That's DK Ministries, M I N I S T R I E S, 1977 at yahoo.com. If you just want to just send us a line just to tell us how you feel about it, do so. We welcome your comments. We sincerely hope and pray that you're learning and gaining Bible knowledge from our podcast. We've enjoyed being with you today and spreading God's word. But until next time we come together, may God bless you all. So, in other words, you're saying if they'll come back, then they'll be blessed. Then we'll continue. Amen. We'll see you next time, folks. God bless. Lord, I just want to do it right the first time. There might not be another chance for me. I want to lay down weights that beset me so I can keep my soul feeling free. I'll gladly bear the reproach, Lord, for the gospel's sake. Where I go, you've already been there, but I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm walking in Jesus' name. I'm going where he bids me go. I'm dressing and talking like he wants me to. He's the keeper of my soul. I have learned to lean on Jesus and cast on him my ever concern. I'm looking for a home in glory. Where no sorrow will